Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, well, we're all a little hairy on the inside. Our guest is one of my favourite contemporary horror writers, one of my favourite writers in any genre at the moment, actually. It's Rachel Harrison returning to the show for the second time with her brand new novel, Such Sharp Teeth. Anyone who's read either of Rachel's previous books, The Return or Cackle, will know that she's got a knack for reinventing horror tropes within these snarky sideways satires of modern life, and in particular, contemporary womanhood. Such sharp teeth is no different in that regard, though the monster at this story's centre allows for a whole new take on the phrase, inside you there are two wolves. Rachel and I talk about messy characters, beastly metaphors and rage-filled rooms. We get into the unexpected earnestness of romance and we wonder if horror comedy may well be the best genre to represent contemporary life. And stick around because Rachel also has the best ever answer to the question of what truly scares you. As I say every week, if you want more Talking Scared of all kinds, you can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and you'll get loads of bonus content and exclusive interviews and I'm doing a special deep dive into the history of the literary werewolf and that'll be out in the next few days. Thanks to everyone who helps support this show. But now off we go for a walk through the woods. The moon is full, the shadows are dark and those monstrous footprints may be your own. Let's talk scared. Hello, Rachel, and welcome back to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm back, baby. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, you came on the show December 2020 when I was still new at all this to talk about your first book The Return you're back now to talk about your third and that's that's three books in as many years in a pandemic with a war on plus like a handful of audio only stuff that you've released by Audible so you must write like a demon I write like I have bills to pay (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I love it, so I'm happy to be writing, and right now that's all I'm doing. So you've gone full-time writer now? Mm-hmm. The pandemic slash downsizing at the company I was at kind of forced the transition, but um, so far it's been good. So yeah, I'm, I'm writing full-time now, which is, is why I'm able to be so productive. Oh, nice. That's a happy outcome. You've been just a kind of ridiculously solid supporter of this show, and it does make me genuinely happy that I actually love your stories because it'd be kind of awkward if not. Yeah, it's quite a relief. <laughs> yeah. When I saw you tweet about such a piece, I was like, whew. <laughs> yeah, you're one of the few authors that I would genuinely just buy the book on your name alone. Your new book, Such Sharp Teeth, does nothing to, to change that or, or disappoint. It's, it's a kind of snarky, sneaky tale of werewolves and quarter-life crisis. It's out October 4th from Berkeley. And I suppose, can you tell us a little bit about the story? Sure. So um, Such Sharp Teeth is about Rory Morris, who is a confident, fiercely independent woman in her late 20s who reluctantly returns to her hometown to be with her twin sister, Scarlett, who is pregnant and estranged from her longtime partner, 
So after about a week of being home, Rory goes out to a local bar and runs into Ian, who is a childhood friend who was always into Rory, but Rory doesn't really do relationships. But seeing him again kind of stirs up some feelings. And then on the way home from the bar, she hits something with her car. And when she gets out to investigate, she is attacked by a mysterious, monstrous creature. And from there, she experiences physical changes that kind of force her to confront some of the things in her life she's been steadfastly avoiding. And it's a werewolf book, so you can kind of guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know yeah. I'm being like, what monstrous creature is it? Yeah. So it says on the cover, it's a werewolf novel. That is a relief because if, you, if you're going to be coy about that, I was like, this interview is going to be quite difficult. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a werewolf book. And I want to talk a lot about werewolves because I don't get to talk enough about werewolves. But but before that, let's let's start with tone, all right? Because The Return was a properly creepy horror novel. I mean, I I tell everyone about that book. As I told you last night, I just recommended it to Margaret Atwood. Um, I... I'm a big fan of The Return. Nuts. But it is scary and it disturbed me. But, but And it's funny and it's right, but it had a real intention to disturb. Cackle, the follow-up, is a kind of much lighter affair. It's more whimsical. Such sharp teeth feels equidistant between the two because it's, it's really nasty in parts, bodily, but it's also quite benign and comical in parts. So... Talk to me, I guess, about balancing tone, comedy and horror. Where are you most comfortable? I think character. I'm kind of character driven when I write. So whoever my protagonist is, is kind of going to dictate what the tone is. But with Cackle, I did make a conscious decision for it to be very different from The Return. I'm very proud of The Return and I would love to write another straight up horror book. But I didn't want to kind of put myself in a box where I kind of felt like I had to do the same thing every time. I wanted to kind of explore my range and challenge myself. And so Cackle, I think in earlier drafts it was a bit darker, but when it got a little bit more whimsical, I kind of embraced it because I wanted to do something a little different and give myself the freedom to do something different every time. I would agree that Such Sharp Teeth does sit between the two, which is convenient because I think it'll bridge the gap between the people who like the return but wanted more horror in Cackle or who liked the whimsical parts of Cackle and couldn't handle the intensity of the return. Um, But it was kind of just a happy accident. It was more that Rory just had a sense of humor. And so the book has a sense of humor. Okay. That makes sense because it, it does feel with all three of them that really the the sort of supernatural aspect runs parallel with a slightly more prosaic story about character. Do you know what I mean? It feels like the two yeah. things are parallel tracks. And I do want to talk a lot about all of that stuff and, and the characters and, and, and all that. But I, I do want to talk about werewolves too because, you know, they, they are underserved, I think, werewolves in contemporary culture. I agree, yeah. Um the first thing to say is that the werewolf does seem to lend itself to this particular sort of askance comedic approach, in, in films particularly, because there aren't that many books. But I'm thinking like Dog Soldiers, 
and and ginger snaps which if anyone is a fan of ginger snaps i think they will really like your book even like the big beast itself like an american wolf in london it's as comedic as it is frightening what do you think it is about the werewolf that inspires that 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 weird approach i think maybe like when you think of vampires it's like sexy vampires and werewolves aren't inherently sexy so i think it kind of leads into the like you know all monsters to a certain degree are ridiculous <laughs> so if you're not balancing that out with like the like brooding sexy vampire what is where's there to go for werewolves mm-hmm. like if they were to take themselves too seriously i don't know i think just the inherent nature of turning into a beast and the frothing fangs and the kind of crazy rage maybe it's the anger of it mm-hmm. that kind of leads to this like zany humorous bend i'm not quite sure i know you say it's not sexy that i've seen a lot of book covers of of kind of quite hirsute men ripping their their shiny shirts off i guess you're right like the wolf man and chest hair it's it but it, the, those are like i feel like with werewolves the like sexiness is more masculine because women aren't supposed to be hairy uh-huh. <laughs> and smelly yeah. and um in your afterword, in your, your author note, you, you mention this book that sounds really cool. It's called She-Wolf, A Cultural History of Female Female Werewolves, edited by Hannah Priest. Now, for the record, I, I kn- kind of know Hannah. Um, oh, wow. From well, very tenuously. I don't think she'd have a, I, any clue who I was. But from way back in my gothic conference days, uh, she actually lives about 15 miles from me as well. Um, but I haven't read that book and I don't really know much about the sort of niche history of female werewolves. So what can you tell me? What what did you take from Hannah's book? Why is it mentioned in your author note? Well, it was quite a long time, a bit rusty <laughs> on it. Um, but it was more for me to just have context on what already exists. And, you know, it was more like exploring the parallels and werewolves and female werewolves and menstruating and things like that, like those connections. But part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I don't know how exactly the thought came into my head, but I was thinking about werewolf book, like, oh, I'd like to like write about werewolves. And how come there aren't more female werewolf stories? Like it seems such an easy parallel to make. So why isn't the market flooded with them? Um, and that's kind of why I was like, it seems like there's a space for that kind of story. So when you say it's an easy parallel to make, what do you mean? Like changing once a month, um, loss of control, body autonomy, um, things like that. Right. Yeah. So that gets into the real interesting stuff because basically because of what you just said, because there's a lot of stuff to, to take apart with that. Before we do, I just want to recommend to listeners, if you are interested in werewolves, another scholar that I would definitely check out is Kaya Frank, and that's spelled K-A-J-A-F-R-A-N-C-K. She's a friend of mine. She's got a PhD in lycanthropy, which is about the best title ever. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, and and she's actually coming on to recall with me for a patron episode to complement this episode well, she's going to be talking about werewolves and all these things and the academic take on it and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, go go follow her on. It's just at Kaya Frank on Twitter. But back to you. We've already got to gender then. Right. And 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 
that bring you know the women of such sharp teeth that's what it's all about and when i wrote that list of 50 best ever horror novels for esquire shameless plug um i described you as horror's foremost chronicler of the contemporary female experience i i stand by that thank you that's a very <laughs> generous <laughs> in your in your last two books you've really dissected as about the way that that modern female friendships function and you know in all their beauty and all their messiness this book feels a lot more about family but also a lot more about Rory's internal life is I mean she has got this friend Ash but it feels more about her her sister her mother and her own tussle with herself is it is is that fair yeah that's fair why the shift because Cackle's what was also about friendship you know so why that turn inward Again, I, I didn't. I don't want to ever put myself in a box where every book I write has mm-hmm. to be about. I love to write about female friendship, and I, I hope to write about it for the rest of my career as long as I have one. <laughs> um, but I wanted to explore different kind of relationships in this book, and again, I think a lot of it came from feeling out the character and. For me, ultimately, the story is about, I mean, it's a monster book, but it's about being human and being vulnerable and opening yourself up. And so if Rory didn't have any friends at this point <laughs> or like dysfunctional friendships, it, it wasn't as, didn't really fit the theme of what I was going for. She does have relationships. She does have friendships, but it's more about her being able to open herself up into the people that are closest to her or to people that she hopes to be close to. So I think it would be underserved if it was just, if it was only friendships. It needed to be a sister, somebody, mm-hmm. the closest person to her, a twin sister, her mother, and then opening herself up to to love, to a romantic relationship, which she'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Her mother is an absolute nightmare. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had to warn my own mom. I was like, it, "It's not you, and <laughs> it's not you." Because <laughs> I am noticing a lot of this in in female horror at the moment. I'm currently reading Jackal uh, by Erin Adams, and yeah, she's got another monstrous mother. You know, like kill with kindness, sort of sort of thing mm. you, you seem you don't really get men right you get these freudian nightmares with men you know what i mean but they tend to be quite grandiose they don't tend to just be like my mother is a complete pain yeah the like subtle nuanced nightmare <laughs> yeah like real microaggressions you know real the passive aggression is is ripe it's yeah i i did wonder whether you had to warn your own mother about the book that's that's the whole relationship dynamic dealt with then let's talk about werewolves so a lot of the the metaphor and the symbolism and, and the representational stuff around werewolves, it, it's quite strong. But it always seems to revolve around the act of like transformation itself. And where women are concerned, that's easily applied to things, to thresholds like puberty, menopause or menstruation on a, on a more regular basis. Right. That's my little mini thesis about what werewolves are. Um, mm-hmm. Such sharp teeth seems much more slippery in its metaphors. Do you have an answer for what, if anything, Rory's lycanthropy stands for? Or is it just a story about a woman who turns into a monster once a month? 
I think there were a lot of accidental um, kind of nuances that came out while I was writing about the werewolf, but ultimately it's something that forces her to deal with this this big physical change that she has to reckon with for the rest of her life forces her to look in inward and deal with some of the things that she has avoided or um, you know anger issues that she has, you know walls she's put up. She can no longer avoid these things because now she's in a more dangerous form. There's a line in it I can't remember now, but she's saying it's it's trapped me with the worst of myself. And I think that's ultimately – it's just forcing her to make an emotional transformation because she can no longer be freewheeling and live her life without responsibility. Now she's – there's a lot of responsibility when you turn into a monster once a month and you have to think about how you interact with other people and – can you get close to other people? You know, what what is your responsibility to protect the people around you? So it was more about a reckoning for Rory than mm-hmm. metaphors. There are metaphors there that kind of came out in the process of writing, but I didn't sit down and being like, well, her being a werewolf is a metaphor for this. It was more of a, a supernatural plot device to force her to um, deal with her shit. What is it you like about that device? Because it's something you have done three times with great success now where you take a kind of i don't know a kind of scenario i think more than a plot a scenario that's to do with interpersonal stuff or or to do with you know inner stuff and then you use like the supernatural as a kind of catalyst for that journey what what is it that what's the appeal of that you because you could just have written a real kind of like navel gazing story about a woman who moves back to a small town and has to open herself up to love you know but you didn't you, you injected a werewolf is that just in your writing dna or is it a strategy a lot of what i write is to figure out how i feel about things and i don't want to like rory i kind of have an avoidant personality i was raised catholic i like to sweep things under the rug so i'm not going to confront certain feelings and emotions that I have straight up. I'm going to write about them using like, it's kind of my own coping mechanism. The monsters are my coping mechanism. Um, And that's why there will always be supernatural elements in my work because I don't want to deal with my own, (laughs) like Rory, I don't want to deal with my shit. So, So is there always a kind of fairly profound autobiographical thing going on? At least psychologically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I did wonder how much... I mean, we were talking off air about the fact that you've moved out to, you know, you, you, you've gone full small-town America now um, and you've left Brooklyn behind and stuff. And I, th- that's the theme in, in this book. You know, Rory returns from her very busy, very wildly successful, exciting life in, in New York and she goes back to her small town. And she feels all kinds of ways about that. And, and I did wonder how much this was you reckoning with your own change in lifestyle. Oh, yeah. I mean, in in Cackle, too, and in, in The Return, even before I left Brooklyn, uh, Elise lives in Buffalo, because I kind of knew I would end up in this region. So it's kind of me, like, dealing with, I never thought I would leave the city. I'm leaving the city. Life outside of the city is good, too. <laughs> like, relax. So I'm working that out and... In all three of my novels, but 
hopefully now I'm settled. So you won't <laughs> hear about small towns anymore, readers. One of the things about moving back to this small town for Rory is you as you already mentioned, is that she she finds this love interest, Ian, which I had to laugh because Ian for me is a name that just conjures absolutely no hint of romance or sexuality i don't know whether it's different in in the u.s but in the uk ian is the name of a kind of middle manager at a paper factory who i I wish i knew (laughs) i wish i knew that Uh, there was like a um there was a guy in my high school named ian and all the girls had a crush on him so i think that's where i pulled from okay I mean, in case I've offended any Ians out there, my name is Neil, and basically we peaked in '69 with Neil Armstrong. It's been downhill since then. So, like, I have I have got the most boring. No one has any good thoughts about anyone called Neil. It's it's a terrible name. But Ian's Ian's not far behind Nigel. Maybe I can like bring that. it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, make make me kind of sultry and seductive and 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 dangerous in your next book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ian's this guy who kind of symbolises a return to roots because you know they had Rory and him had a friendship when they were at school, and it's this will they won't they, and they never did, and etc. You know, and and I never quite understood how I was supposed to feel about the love story at the heart of this book. And don't worry, listeners, we will get back to violence and werewolves soon. But this love story is interesting. Because in the broader context of Rory's life and her return to small town, I never quite got whether you were on board with the old-fashioned rom-com-ness of it all, the meet-cute, or whether or it, it feels at odds with this kind of snarky, modern female perspective. Basically, I, I couldn't tell whether the book was a journey towards love or away from freedom. Mm. I think it's toward love. Um, my first two books are very, like, very few male characters and the ones who exist are, um, nothing to write home about. Um, and I, I wanted, I like romance and I think horror and romance go hand in hand. Um, they go really nicely together. And I think about like creature features like the Wolfman or like Dracula. And there's always like a romantic element in Cackle and to an extent in the return, it's these codependent women who learn to be independent. And in this book, I wanted to show somebody who is totally confident and secure in herself, who can accept love, not as forsaking freedom, but because it's it's a form of happiness, because that partnership is happiness and it's okay to open yourself up and to want to share your life with somebody. Um, especially I think for people who have experienced things that make them closed off or afraid to let other people in to get to that point where you can be vulnerable with somebody else, I think is really beautiful and powerful. And, um, the book is, you know, snarky and has a sense of humor. But for me, the love story was genuine because it's part of Rory's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of how she transforms, you know, outside of the the werewolf stuff. I, I think it says something about the broader 
genre at the moment and perhaps even the state of culture at the moment. I think the reason I asked that question is I was a little bit surprised by how comfortable you were with just earnestness and just niceness. And do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. I think I expected this kind of ironic detachment that is there at the start, kind of, you know, and then and then it starts to fade and you realise, oh no, this is just a love story. And I was I was waiting for for the the rug pull and I was waiting for all kinds of things to happen. And I was like, oh no, no, no. Rachel is committing to an authentic small town love story. It seems kind of at odds in, in a cool way. This is this is a long-winded compliment. It seems at odds with the broader zeitgeist, which seems very opposed to any kind of earnestness at the minute. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious too with with this book and with Cackle that I I wrote them post pandemic, and everything has been so bleak the past few years that when I sit down to write, I kind of don't. I'm leaning away from the bleakness a little bit because mm-hmm. every, I it's just you know, as you said earlier, just it's like an apocalyptic landscape. So I don't want to sit down and and double down on that. And when I'm like, if I'm going to escape into fiction, I want to escape into fiction and give my characters a happy ending and leave them in a good place. Um, I'm sure. At some point, I'll get into a headspace where I can get nasty again, but that's kind of just not been where I've I've been at. And I think some earnestness is is nice. Well, I'm just straight off the back of binging um, the TV show This Is Us, so I am full. You know, on. I'm a fan. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. We chatted about this on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's necessary. I mean, it, and I I think that show came out in 2016. So like after. Trump won. Mm-hmm. I started watching that show and it was like, this is a nice escape and just a, like pleasant little glimpses into happiness. Um, it's, it's kind of like the West Wing. I, I watched the West Wing at, at times of, of low political kind of despair because you kind of think, you know, there can be a better world. One day Martin Sheen could be president, you know, and it will all be okay again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is us. Just honestly, me and my wife just delighted in it. It was just the the, the warmest bath of a of a TV viewing experience I've ever had. I cried about once every three episodes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I called it the crying show. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's Tuesday night. It's time for the crying show. And you have a nice cathartic, like happy, sad cry. Yeah. And then you can move on. Like it's, yeah. Well, speaking of catharsis, um, you have stolen an idea that I thought would make me millions. So in this book, Ian takes Rory on the best date of all time, and he takes her to something that you call a rage room, where yeah. he just basically they go in with baseball bats, and she takes a sledgehammer because she's really strong because she's a werewolf, and they beat the shit out of cars and Christmas trees. Um, did you think that up, or is that a real thing? That's a real thing over here. I'm always behind the curve, right? I had been kind of talking about this idea for about five years to people because I realised that everyone's getting angry and everyone's got this, this sort of impotent rage. And I thought, just, you know, buy a lot of shit, smash it up. But it's a real. I didn't realise it was a real thing. I thought it was going to make me my fortune. No, us Americans, we, <laughs> we need, we've needed it for a while. Um, but you could bring it to the UK. 
Have you have you ever been to one? I have not. Um, I've there's there was one like on the main stretch in the city where I lived. I don't know if it's still there, and I'd walk by it, and so I think that's kind of and I've seen them, and um, so, and I think when I was in college, this guy in like a business class made a business proposal for like a a line of of rage rooms. So kind of been in the back of my mind and it just seemed like it would be a good good date, especially for Rory. Wanna go to one so badly. When you come for StokerCon, we'll take Indeed. a look. I'm sure they have one in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um speaking of rage, it's a bit of a tired question, but I've got to ask it. But the fact that it's tired is what makes it relevant. So there are quite a few points in this book where I got strong, unavoidable Me Too resonances. So, mm-hmm. and I kept making notes. So, like, there's one bit when she first encounters the werewolf, which is a genuinely frightening scene. And it, 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 I was like, oh, good, this is a horror novel. It's a really frightening encounter. But she, when she's being chased by the werewolf, um, Rory says, you know, it's not the first beast to see me this way, but it might be the last. And then later, there's a really impactful moment when she remembers talking with her college roommates and realizing everyone has these similar stories of abuse and mistreatment. Uh, and there's other stuff as well. Yeah, it, it never actually feels like that's what the book is really about. We're already guilty of just imposing this 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 metaphor on female horror fiction that it's always about that, that it's always about, you know, sexual exploitation or some kind of Me Too scenario. Uh, whereas your book feels just way more affirmative than that. Like, it's full of, of scenes of, of Rory just physically kind of hurting men <laughs> or or at least being aware that she could. You know, there's one bit where I, I noticed something down. There's one, she has one encounter uh, and she says about this guy, his grin suggests he's ignorant of danger. He suggests that he assumes he is stronger, assumes he is safe. I wonder what that's like to assume safety. But then at the same time that she knows that she can just bite off his tongue if she wants to. I mean, is it a kind of wish fulfillment fantasy that you're writing in parts? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just kind of reality. Like, it would be nice to, like, be able to walk home without your keys between your fingers, things like that, um, where you just kind of get, so like a lot of people get fed up (laughs) with that. Not, it's not part of like the me too, or, you know, I don't care if the me too is projected onto it. It's just life. It's just the reality of it, Mm -hmm. of, of having to constantly look over your shoulder, be afraid or carry pepper spray or don't go out after this certain hour. And, you know, what would it like to be, what would it be like to be free of that burden that, you know, most of us carry subconsciously? Yeah. I still just think it's quite fun to read about Rory just pushing people into walls and snapping their collarbone in advertisement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I would quite, I don't know. Maybe, I, I have a lot of like aggression, I think. <laughs> really? Would, would never have guessed. <laughs> There was a video of, I was home watching like home movies and there's a video of me and my older brother and I have a, like a football helmet 
and I'm just standing over him and just beating him with it. And my mom's just filming this. And I was watching it with my husband and I look over at him and he's just like, I can't even. I was like, I like there's girls are violent. <laughs> We're how, violent. How much young how much younger is your brother? Hmm? How much younger is your brother? He's older. Oh God. Right. Okay. He's, he's a year and a half older. And like we would wrestle and stuff, but I never remembered like doing that. And then I guess I should admit now, because I already said it online, I I also at some point stabbed him with a pencil, I guess. <laughs> uh, I thought it was an accident while we were wrestling, but um, apparently no, he remembers it different. <laughs> he remembers I straight up stabbed him with a pencil, I which is in would, yeah. the story, <laughs> Bad Dolls. So then I admitted that I... It was actually based on real life. But yeah, I was a violent little creature. And so I think I probably, <laughs> I think I might still have that aggression somewhere inside me based on what came out of me when I was writing this book. Like I, when I sit down like to write, I'm having fun. But then certain things come, it's like all subconscious. I listen to this podcast all the time and everything, these writers seem so intentional and to know what they're doing. And I just sit down and I'm like, we're going to see what happens today. And then I kind of find out later when I'm reading back and I'm like, oh, that's something that I buried pretty deep. So it's all, yeah, that's my secret. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, because that, that gives me hope because I, I also listen to this podcast every week and I hear those <laughs> intentioned authors and I just think, yeah, I, I have no idea how to plot or how to really have any sense of intent beyond well, what happens today so i certainly don't <laughs> <laughs> i listened back to that our conversation about the return and i had to cringe i'm not gonna lie because i mean apart from some quite poor audio quality and i i had this really weird oh so professional delivery style which made me cringe so it was it was a painful thing to listen back to. You were great. It was all me. Oh, I I don't I think about it all the time. I'm like I was so nervous to come on today because I was like, this is my do over. You got one shot. <laughs> well, you were great. Right. But you, there's there's quite a few interesting points of comparison between that book and Sh- such sharp teeth. Before I ask about them, um, how has your writing process changed? Because you used to just kind of sit there. You said on the couch at half four in the morning. I mean, how, now that you're a professional full time writer, how how has it changed? I write full time. I calling me professional is very generous. Um, I still get up early because I think I'm sharper in the morning. So I'll get up like five thirty six. And I'll write until like 9.30 and then I'll take a long walk and then I'll eat lunch, come back, and then I'll write all afternoon. And then if I have other like adjacent acti- writer adjacent activities, I'll do those in the evening. So it's kind of the same. I might need to get a different like a part-time job because when you have more time to write, it's easier to be less intense about it. And when I was working full time and getting up at 4.30 in the morning, like that hour I had to write, I could be so productive because I knew that's all I had. And now if I'm like, well, I only got 100 words down, that's fine. I can do it this afternoon. So I kind of need to to rein it back in and give myself some stricter deadlines. Yeah, work expands to fit the time you have for it, doesn't it? Yeah. I have mm-hmm. that because I, when I'm not doing this, I'm just like a copywriter for a local agency. And I, you know, I can turn a 500 word blog into two days work. 
you know. And then also the yeah. other thing for me that is, is difficult is that because I have this show, there's always something to do which has an immediate sort of gratification return. And it's much easier, even though it's quite dull to sit and edit the podcast. It probably takes, what, someone's been three and four hours to edit a podcast. It's something that when I do it, I'm like, okay, that is the thing that when I finished it, it will be done and I'll feel like I've achieved something. And it's so much easier to confront a task like that than it is, you know, the, the how long is a piece of string writing situation. So that I, I just endlessly do like finite tasks. You can cross off the list and it feels satisfying because it's yeah. done. Yeah. I need one of the many reasons I'm taking a short break on this podcast to try and not give myself that excuse. I'm I'm a listener and I'm very grateful you're taking a break because I can't imagine your reading schedule and how much work goes into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was having this conversation. Sorry, it's all about me now. We will get back to the book shortly, but I was I was talking to um, a friend this weekend about it and I was saying that even books that I'm enjoying now I am reading as a process you know and yeah. as I'm reading them I'm thinking like oh I'll, if I finish this soon I can read that one sooner and then I can and it's like well there has to be some point where you just enjoy the book for what it is um, and I want to break that cycle I want to go back to really really loving um, reading again and I can only do that by not having to read at least one book every five days you know, so yeah, taking a break and I'll, I'll probably try and write something for a change. Right, back to the book. And I said that I had, you know, noticed some comparisons between our chat about The Return and this book. So first of all, with The Return, I asked you about Elise, the main character. We talked about likability and unlikability and all that bullshit. And you said that she's neither, she's just messy. And I wonder, do you feel the same way about Rory? Because Rory's her own kind of hot mess, right? I really like Rory. So, I mean, I think all versus like likable, unlikable, all my characters, I just try and make my characters feel like real humans. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I sh I'm sure some people like me, don't like me, find me likable, unlikable. Doesn't mean that I am or I'm not. It's just how you find, how you perceive somebody. Um, we're all just flawed humans so I, I try and make my characters as real as possible and Rory can get obnoxious because she's snarky and that's kind of her coping mechanism and how she's like she's kind of created this armor with humor um but I think she's fun and so especially because Elise and Annie I think were so insecure within themselves and Rory is so like good with who she is. She's confident in how she looks. She's confident in her career and her personality. And it was kind of refreshing to step into somebody who's like not having that like internal like, am I good enough for somebody else? Like, am I the friend that nobody like, like that insecurity is was a lot to sit in for two books. And and Rory does get insecure, but overall she like is confident. And it was nice to cosplay someone confident. <laughs> <laughs> is she more confident than you? Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about this and I feel like at my worst, I'm Annie at her worst. Just like very self-deprecating and kind of wallowy. And at my best, I'm Rory at her best. Where she would just like walk into a party, take two shots of tequila and be like, hey, what's up everybody? Like just comfortable around people and and comfortable in her skin. So if I'm if I'm having a good day, I can be Rory at her best. 
but most of the time I'm, <laughs> I'm not. Well, obviously we, we, we know each other via social media and social media is, is a curated thing, but that's the impression I get of you. Reading this book, I felt like Rory was the closest to the person I expect you to be, if that makes sense. That's that's great. I hope everybody <laughs> thinks that. Well, I hope people who like Rory think that. But um... I'm now sort of retracing this conversation and going backwards. I've just told you that, but my previous statement was Rory's kind of a hot mess. So we'll just well, she's she's messy in like in how she deals with emotional things, but mm-hmm. like at her, you know who she is, and you know she's not messy about herself. She's kind of messy about her relationships that yeah this is just occurring to me that is the difference she's really bad at being clear about her feelings and and to others and stuff but she's not at all worried about herself and that ties in really well actually to the werewolf thing and to the comparison with the return because in the return well or in the in our conversation about it we talked about all of this weird shit that's happening but the characters just refuse to engage or acknowledge it and you said that is a realistic reaction. And I said, I don't think it is because I'm too open to the idea that weird stuff is going on all the time and I'd be shit scared. Um, but either way, in such sharp teeth, the reactions seem completely opposite because Rory gets to grips with what's happening to her really quite early on. Um, and when she tells Scarlett, her sister, with some really grim evidence, she also gets on board. So, you know, why the different approach, I suppose? Why are these characters so happy to confront the irrational, whereas your previous characters weren't? So I think with the return, and I remember this part of our conversation, because I too am scared of everything. And like, I'm always like, well, there's obviously a man in my closet who's going to kill me. But I think because I'm always thinking that way, if there actually was, I wouldn't believe it because every other time it wasn't true. Right. But with such sharp teeth, I just don't think it would have worked with the denial. Like, as soon as she turns the first time, there's no more denying it. And and she's physically changing to the point where it's happening to her, to our protagonist. So if she were like, well, I guess it's fine that, like, I'm oozing silver goo. I feel like that jump of, are the readers going to buy that, like, is too big of a a chasm so to me it seemed more functional for her to just be like oh this is happening because i'm watching it happen i'm feeling it happen it's happening to my body um whereas in the return it's kind of happening it's not from julie's perspective if it was i think it would be more like such sharp teeth because you can't it's harder to deny something that is happening to you physically than it is something that's like Maybe that noise isn't the noise that I heard, or maybe Julie's just really sick. Like, there's no kind of other explanation to I was bitten by a creature in the middle of the night, and now, like, I have fur under my skin. <laughs> and it it actually ties into a lot of the comedy, that kind of full, frank facing of the situation. There's a lot of comedy about it, because there's this weird, prosaic thing about making werewolves quite practical at one point she finds out that somebody in her life has like an old victorian safe downstairs and she's like oh amazing i, I, could, I could be put in that for, for a day and that could be safe uh, that's quite cool but also i really really enjoyed the way that y- you seem to imply that 
that lycanthropy is just one more inconvenience within the everyday female experience, right? So there's this obvious parallel with Scarlett's pregnancy because both conditions involve transformation and kind of like the looming threat of physical pain and also this broader sense that life will be entirely different going forward. So there's there's that comparison. And there's times when Scarlett, who is pregnant, is just like, I can't deal with your shit right now. I've got my own thing going on. Which is funny, right? Because like her sister's turned into a wolf, but she's still kind of like, I've got I've got my own shit. But there's also things like a baby shower takes on real dramatic significance. Rory is as bothered by, you know, her up and down love life with Ian as she is by her own lycanthropy. So it feels like you're flattening out these crises, implying they're all in some way equal. And that does feel intentional. Yeah, I mean, one of the scariest things about body horror is whatever you experience in your body, you experience alone. Like If you feel pain, only you know how that pain feels because it could feel different to somebody else. And so this is speaking from for myself, but it's so exhausting to, to take care of my body and to exist in my body that I feel like if there was one other thing, even if it was being a werewolf, you just learn how to deal with it. I mean, especially for me as someone with a uterus who menstruates, like when I was and, you know, this experience is mirrored with Rory where when she finds out about it, when she's at, you know, 12 or whatever, she's like, that can't be true. I like, what do you mean I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life? Like, that sounds terrible. And then it happens and you deal with it. And so, you know, I think also people who deal with chronic illnesses, to somebody who doesn't have that illness, to hear about it, you would think, oh my gosh, how do you deal you just deal like it's your body. You have to keep going the best you can. And so that's kind of how I viewed the lycanthropy where it's, you know, if it seems so horrific from the outside, but if you're living with it, you're living with it and you deal with it because you have to. So you can't change bodies. <laughs> like you're stuck in your skin. Um, well, exactly. Stuck in your skin, although in her case, she bursts out of it. <laughs> where did you get the visuals for the transformation from is because it's pretty grim it's kind of full-on violent gory genuine body horror <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wanted it to be um i i watched the transformation scene in the howling i watched but for the most part it was um an american werewolf in london that transformation mm -hmm. scene to me is the most memorable transformation scene in werewolf pop culture um, mm -hmm. and just the agony of it comes across so well, um, that, yeah, I watched that a few times and then just my most violent imagination, a combination of the two. And, and the other thing I liked, which I think is genuinely like unique to this, because, you know, it's, it's, it's I imagine it's quite difficult to do something new with the werewolf because it's such a codified lore, you know, I really like this thing where she sees the wolf in the mirror when she when she looks in the mirror she sees the wolf as an ex, a sort of separate thing looking over her shoulder she has to face herself and so that's kind of like the obvious like here's my face and then here's this other thing that i have to face yeah so i'm glad to hear it worked for you because it's, it's always a risk of being cheesy 
No, that's the part that I found creepy. I found, obviously, the, the, the transformation is really, really grisly. And that first scene when she's being chased by the werewolf is just brilliant. It really, really kind of just feels like a proper horror story. Um, but the, the part that I thought was creepy was the wolf looking over her shoulder and how she closes her eyes and sometimes it's still there and sometimes it's not because it's got that irreality, that, that sense of the reality bending that, that always kind of gets inside my head. Yeah. And it would play so well as in a movie as well, that visually. It's like the old, the old mirror jump scare. It'd be so cool. Like it's the wolf's head over the shoulder. I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> What's your favourite werewolf movie or book or whatever? I think Ginger Snaps. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's obvious in the – I mean, I hadn't seen it for a really long time. And then I watched it again after I finished the draft um, because I, as much as like – I like to kind of get my feet wet with like witch stuff and werewolf stuff. I don't want to steep myself before I write or while I'm writing. I don't want to steep myself in it and then um, get too bogged down in in lore. Um, mm-hmm. But I did rewatch it and it, it holds up. So I, yeah. I love Ginger Snaps. I don't think I've seen it in about 20 years. I can't remember. I remember loving it, but I can't much about it. But I also imagine that when I watched it as like a teenage boy, a lot of the subtext kind of went <laughs> wider the mark. So I probably need I think I'm aware of the metaphor from reading about it rather than from watching it so I probably need to go back and and watch that again I also love that there are there's loads of sequels supposedly where it kind of goes back in time which I think is quite I always love that stuff yeah, maybe I'll have to have a marathon and watch all the yeah. sequels and yeah have you watched The Descent yet because I compared The Return to The Descent it's about female friendship and it's my favorite horror movie have you have you watched it yet I still haven't this is a crime Rachel I really need it to it is a crime Rachel I need to watch it <laughs> Yeah, so I will, I'll meet you in June at StockerCon. You have until then because it's the okay. greatest horror movie ever made. Deal. Uh, right, let's finish off with, the, with the, the same old, same old. Can you recommend a book for us and, and tell us why? Yes. So I put a lot of thought into my book recommendations and I'm going to do one that I think maybe your audience hasn't heard of yet. And cool. that's Build Your House Around My Body by Violet Coopersmith. It's set in Vietnam over decades and it's this brilliant, sprawling, beautiful, at times terrifying book. And it's sort of like if A Visit from the Goon Squad was a speculative horror novel. It sits on the edge of the genre. So if you want like straight horror, it's not the book for you. But if you want something like moody and clever and with some like really intense scares – then this is the book for you. It does have snakes, though. So if you're an Indiana Jones type, that might be tricky. (laughs) You had me at sprawling, because I'm really craving some kind of maximalist horror stories at the moment. I thought you would really like this book. I just looked it up, and the the, the top blurb is from Madeline Miller, who wrote Cersei, uh, which is a book I absolutely adore. So so that's two. Paul blurbed it too, I think. Excellent, right? David Mitchell as well, one of my other favourite writers. So uh, would do you think it would be good for the show? Would you recommend just getting her on to talk about it? I'm sure she would be. I haven't spoken to her, but, I mean, the book is so brilliant that I would love to listen to that episode and <laughs> to listen right. to you guys talk. Basically, if I'm going to read a big, sprawling book, I kind of need to get the person on the show to validate spending a week reading it. It's not too long. It's sprawling, but it's not like a – I think it's probably no more than 400 pages. Oh, okay. Okay. But it fits a lot in those pages. 
I've got Chuck Wendig coming on the show um, at the end of, well, no, in early November. And I've had to literally set aside two weeks of my life to read Wanderers and the follow-up Wayward because they're both like a thousand pages long. You're into that though. You like a disappearing into a big... Absolutely love it. But I'm, I'm trying to actually sell like a review or an article to somebody who will pay me enough to take the week off work needed to read the book. <laughs> so, so that, yeah. So if anyone hears this and they want something about Chuck Wendig or that, just, just let me know. And um, I'll definitely read that, Rachel, and that will go on the reading list. And just, so say again, it's called Build Your House Around My Body by Violet Cooper Smith. Yes. Thank you for that. I've never heard of it. So it's always good to hear about new things. Last question. You know what's coming. Last time I asked you what truly scared you, you basically said everything and then listed about a dozen movies. So feel <laughs> free to do that again or or not. Up to you. But but what scares you? I couldn't remember what I said last time. So I, I thought it was like something grim. So I thought this time I would be honest about something that's kind of – that's funny when it's not happening, which I, I have a real phobia of um, garden gnomes. Uh, it's bad. It's like Sorry. a panic fight or flight. Um. Every time I see one, like my body reacts as if I've seen a wild animal. It's not like, like <laughs> most people, if they saw a scorpion, they would react the way that I react when I see a garden gnome. Um, it's the physical like experience of danger. Um, and it's very real. And some of, <laughs> some of my friends know about this and uh, don't take <laughs> like to watch me freak out. Um, now that I'm saying this, I realize I shouldn't have because I've just invited a bunch of people. It's like, I'll get over it. So it's not like, mm. so, but it, it's not fun for me. And there's one in my neighborhood too, that every time I walk by, it's like, keep walking. Um, oh, yeah. so a few things about that. Um, one, I'm really, I'm really sorry for laughing. No, it's okay. Because- it's really funny. Yeah, but you, to, to be honest, somebody being scared about something, like the fact that the, the object itself is, is funny shouldn't make someone laugh at someone's fear. Because if you'd said something, you know, if you said something else that seemed serious, I wouldn't have laughed. So it, it, that's bad. I apologise, right? But it is funny. Um, s- second, I'm going to tell you a story that might actually, you might like this. My uncle, who is just a madcap idiot of a guy, um, once had a falling out with his neighbour who was a mad collector of garden gnomes, right? And they had, they had a real kind of falling out. And my uncle stole this guy's prize gnome <laughs> and started like, it was a pottery gnome. So he got like his little like mechanical saw and he started sawing off fingers of this gnome oh my and post, posting it to his neighbor with ransom notes. All right, your uncle's a hero. <laughs> yeah, the man's a legend. But yeah, I, I thought you'd—I hadn't thought about that story in in decades. But yeah, uh, lastly, I've got to ask, why? Do you have any idea why you're scared of gnomes? No, it's it's a folk like I have a needle phobia and I have a gnome phobia. Like I just—it's just something intrinsic that's been like not, I've not, I haven't had a traumatic incident with a garden gnome. There has that I can remember maybe I'd have and I just buried it so deep that <laughs> it'll come out someday in a horror novel um but yeah I don't know it's just what what it is I see it and it's it's a big no for me <laughs> can I recommend that if ever you bring out like a, a big retrospective short story collection that you title it needles and gnomes 
Needles and gnomes. You know, like nightmares and dreamscapes. Needles and gnomes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Eventually, like, it's kind of begs, like, I'm a horror writer who has a phobia of garden gnomes. Like, I have to go there at some point, but like yeah. I said, I don't like to confront my issues. So, uh, not consciously anyway. So, we'll see. I just may, I may rock up at StokerCon carrying a gnome now. It just, it yeah, somebody's going to. Now that I've stated this in public, somebody's going to get me eventually. And you'll, yeah. it'll be funny. It'll be funny for whoever <laughs> witnesses it. And eventually I will laugh about it after I'm done freaking oh. out. Oh, sorry, that was my doorbell. That's fine. Um, right. Well, listen, what better time to wrap up then? You've you scared of gnomes. The doorbell rang. Um, no. No. <laughs> What if it's the gnome from up the street? <laughs> yeah, like I didn't see anybody. Would it be scary if it was the gnome, or if the gnome had grown to like a full human size? Well, there. So there's a garden store around here, like that. I went in to be like, I'm gonna get some plants, and then they have like a massive, like, like over human sized gnome, and that didn't go well. Um, so either way, it would be bad. Oh. <laughs> you know, you know. Every week, I give like a whimsical title to one of these episodes that's kind of like lifted from some obscure thing that someone said in the conversation well this is going to is going to involve gnomes and the listeners are going to be listening for like an hour and wonder what <laughs> fuck i'm talking about and then they're going to hear this and it's going to be like oh okay i get it but it's gonna be a long wait for for resolution um like, i thought this book was about werewolves yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah right rachel it is about werewolves and it's a great book and i think anyone who likes ginger snaps or any kind of pop culture take on the werewolf they're gonna love it the characters are funny it's snarky it's clever it's the horror with heart thing we always say we like um i love your writing style i just wish you all the best and yeah and and thank you once again for talking scared so candidly thank you for having me again Well, first of all, my apologies to the Ians of the world, or at least the Ians who listen to this show, if there are any. Um, Who am I? A lowly Neil to cast aspersions on the charisma of anyone's name. Listening back, I did think, oh no, I may have annoyed people, but then I realised that in the wake of Hurricane Ian, I'm probably the least of their concerns. And for the record, who calls a Hurricane Ian? This seems a strange one. It did lead to the funniest headline of the week on the BBC, which led on their webpage with the question, without any context, (laughs) what is Ian up to right now? When you weren't quite sure who Ian was at the time. Seems an odd question. But, I mean, I shouldn't make light about it, actually, because if any listeners are caught up in what appeared to be an apocalyptic end-time storm then I do hope you and your loved ones are okay and safe and well. We had the minor collapse of our political and and banking system going on here in the UK last week, so the storm didn't get perhaps as much coverage as it it usually would. Well, this is a long ramble without any reference to the book we've just discussed. I suppose that that does kind of fit with the tone of that interview, though, because both Rachel and I sounded very relaxed and very laid-back and laconic, I thought I sounded quite like a stone surfer dude if if anyone surfed this far inland. Maybe that is a reflection on how relaxed Rachel and her fiction makes me feel. Her books are like a safe pair of hands. You know that things are going to be okay. You're going to be entertained. It's going to be good. 
Like we said, such sharp teeth sits perfectly between the charm of Cackle and the genuine chills of The Return. And I'd recommend reading all three. And if you have, I'd be intrigued to know which was your favourite. They all share Rachel's distinctive voice, but at the same time, they feel like very different books catering to the whole spectrum of horror readers. I adored The Return, loved it. And if you haven't, you should absolutely read that book and then go listen to episode 17 of this podcast when Rachel and I talk about it. I preferred Such Sharp Teeth to Cackle because, well, it has sharper teeth. It's it's a quite unforgiving character study. It doesn't pull its punches either in gore or in the way it lays its characters bare. Likeability doesn't and shouldn't come into it, but Rachel's characters are definitely more interesting than the average. They feel alive and lived in and open to proper human interpretation. And those transformation scenes, well, they are gnarly. And the result is a book that is genuinely perched between horror and comedy without either element overwhelming the other. And that's a hard trick to pull off. I asked Rachel what her favourite werewolf movie was and she said Ginger Snaps, which is a a great pick and the one I would have predicted for her as well. My favourite is The Howling, Joe Dante's werewolf horror film from 1981 because it manages to be both schlocky and cheesy and still genuinely frightening. Joe Dante smashed it with that one and in the, the 41 years since it still hasn't aged. It's a great film. I'll be covering the entire history of the werewolf subgenre, from its roots in medieval Europe and the raft of historical serial killers who took the werewolf mantle whilst eating children, all the way to the monster's modern incarnation. That'll be in a Patreon episode coming out in the next week. And if you sign up for that, you get all the other bonus content at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Or you can just go through the link in the show notes. But also... I'd love to know what your favourite werewolf or werebeast of any kind is. You know, from folklore, from fiction, from film, were-tigers, were-bears, were-sharks, whatever. Tell me. Get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at TalkScaredPod. Or if you like, send me an email to TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm back next week with another story of monsters and rage. The guest is Erin E. Adams and the book is called Jackal. It's the story of a small town in the Rust Belt and the young black girls who go missing every summer. It's a meaty, chewy novel and conversation. Until then though, brush your hair, clean your teeth and when the world shoves you around, push back hard. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.